and then came back to that wave and it was just firing. And we could not believe what we were seeing. And we were like, wow, that was the craziest gift yeah. from the gods that we've ever seen. You know, I can't believe we got that. Ninety-eight to like two thousand five, we are un we're untouchable, unfucking touchable. Welcome to The Drop, Stab's weekly show. My name is Danny Johnson and this episode we have two interviews. The first is with Joe Guglielmino or Joe G as he's known when he's often talked about as surfing's greatest filmmaker. I chatted to Joe about his role at Globe International and his early days under Taylor Steele and the, but just the mechanics behind the quality of work that he's so famous for at this point. After that, we'll chat to Ashton Goggins about the release of Stab's latest film series, Andy Irons and the Radicals. You want to make a fucking impact on something, you better go bigger, harder than anyone else. And you better not show any signs of weakness. That's how, that's how you get respect. Before we get into the interviews, let's cover off any surf news this week, of which there was very little, other than some of the updates from the WSL secret flight to Australia. A few weeks back, Stab reported on the WSL's plans to charter a private Boeing 747 flight from Los Angeles to Sydney in the lead up to the Australian tour leg. And Mikey... Charamella has recently written a follow-up piece on Stab with some updates to this story that includes the prices that the surfers will be expected to pay on that flight. So Mikey's story reads, On this plane will be every tour surfer and essential worker, coaches, WSL staff, etc. Not currently in Australia. The plan is to leave LA on March 6th land in Australia on March 8 and perform a 14-day quarantine prior to the opening event at Newcastle, April 1. You might be wondering how much it'll cost the WSL to charter, charter a massive jet. The price is allegedly close to 500k USD. The WSL is selling seats on the plane for the following amounts. Economy, $2,500. Premium econ economy, $4,000. Business, $6,000. And this is reportedly a one-way fare. Surfers will be responsible for making their own ways home, but don't take that as the WSL being stingy. This is a loss leader for them any way you add it up. Oh, and hotel quarantine costs an additional 2,500 USD per person. So it seems based on Mikey's story that the WSL is set to take a massive loss with this flight. But the one thing it didn't factor in is is how the WSL is going to charge the surfers in regards to their baggage fees. Um, like some of these surfers will be taking something like 14 boards each and if the WSL charges the amounts that some of the other airlines do, then, then this could go down as one of the greatest business moves in history. Someone who's definitely not considered this is Stephanie Gilmore. Steph's been based in Malibu since the uh, Hawaiian season. And after watching 
Stab High Non-Chlorine Edition and the airs that Nathan Fletcher was doing on stretches boards. He's a long-time shaper. Steph has said that she she wants to surf like Nathan and she's gone and ordered some boards from Stretch. And if you're wondering how much money someone of Stephanie Gilmore's stature pays when she orders boards from a new shaper, it's it's $650. At least that's the deal that Stretch gave her, which is a bargain. And in Steph, if Steph manages to do uh, any... Nathan Fletcher-esque airs during an event and wins, then it's going to be turn out to be one of the, like an investment similar to early Bitcoin. So let's hope that happens. And let's get to this chat with Joe G. Joe's worked at Globe for 16 years and his title is Global Director of Motion Media Creation. Joe's the visionary behind just hit after hit in the surf film game, think, Movies like Secret Machine, Year Zero, Electric Blue Heaven, Strange Rumblings in Shangri-La and Cult of Freedom are all directed by Joji. He brings, he just brings like cinematic quality to surfing like no other filmmaker ever has or, or probably ever will. He's considered one of the greats and, and he's, he's nowhere near done in, in, his, in his filmmaking career. He's incredibly gifted, equally humble. He, he only wears black. He never wears shorts and he makes his own perfume out of patchouli oil. I chatted to Joe from Stab's Australian office while Joe was in Long Beach, California. So imagine Joe wearing all black and smelling nice. Hot dogs. If you are of true Viking blood, grilled whale meat or roast puffin will keep you fed during your stay in Iceland. But for us lesser men, it was hot dogs. Hot dogs with crispy onion bits. Joe. Yo. How are you, man? What's happening? Not much. And do you want to just do it over the phone or do you want to do it on a, like a... No, just do it on a, we can just do it on the phone if that's, um, I'm, I'm like a, I'm a Luddite. I'm not very good with <laughs> are you really? Zoom calls. I don't know. I have all kinds of problems, Danny. I have all kinds of problems. <laughs> um... Test, test. Okay, so I'll start recording now. Uh, all right. Yeah, it's working. It's 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 happening. <laughs> Good. Um, it, so you didn't grow up in at Long Beach, though. You're you're from Florida originally. Yeah, I grew up in a small town in um, South Florida called Boca Raton. Um, and it was definitely different than a surf community in Southern California or in uh, East Coast of Australia. It was just small there was maybe maybe 15 surfers in my town and a little pack of five of us that kind of rolled around together and um yeah we'd wake up before dawn and like ride our bikes down the middle of the main highway and and uh, get to the beach before you know before the sun would even come up and stand there waiting to see if there'd be waves and there usually wasn't were you the best surfer in the town no <laughs> definitely not <laughs> Before this interview, I realized I didn't really know anything about you because you're, you're not on social media and I don't think you really give many interviews and you, like, you dress no. in all black and, and you kind of <laughs> like have this reputation for being an enigma. So, yeah, who are you? <laughs> Shit, I don't know. 
Yeah, I think the reason why you're probably asking me who I am is because I don't usually like talking about it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> what I am is, I guess, my whole career, I've just been kind of a fan of surfing. I love it. Like, you, you know, you asked if I was the best surfer in my town, and I wasn't. There was a few of us who surfed. I enjoyed it so much, but... I kind of got something different out of it, I think, than everybody else did. And there was a couple kids who were, you know, like sponsored and they'd get a package from Quicksilver when we were growing up. And it, it was like a package from outer space for us. Yeah. You know, it was like, this is insane. You know, somebody was tapped into this world that, you know, for us, we were so far removed from. But for me, surfing was never really about the pursuit of being sponsored or winning a contest. It was... I don't know. I just loved being in the water and there was something else going on. I almost kind of looked at it as a, you know, like a fly on the wall, even when I was out there with my friends. And um, I almost got off on the whole experience more than like what I did on a wave. Yeah, that's really interesting because I've always found that like videographers and photographers as people in their career choice, that they kind of, it's like they spend their entire life in some sort of high-class strip club, some sort of nature's version of a high-class high strip club because you're traveling the world looking <laughs> at the world's most beautiful ways, but you, you can never touch them. And it might be like some fo a form of torture for a lot of people, but it sounds like you're just such a fan of surfing that, that it kind of makes sense to me now. Yeah, well, my role, like even, you know, everybody would always say, you know, when we're traveling and I'd come home and buddies would be like, God, did, you know, did you bring your boards on the trip? You know, we'd go film somewhere and I'd be like, no, I borrowed a board. You know, usually I get to surf when the waves are bad, but when I'm on the road, the thing that I'm most excited about is capturing that moment that someone else has, <laughs> you know, it was like when everything is firing and everything's coming together, like I really get into getting that moment and putting it, you know, I would usually be shooting on film all the logistics and all the hard work and all the craziness that has to come together to get something truly special on film was the thing that I got off on most. You know, I, was, I wasn't even thinking about surfing. A after we'd be done, if we'd be on the road for two weeks and we'd have a couple down days, then I'd be like, ooh, I want to go paddle out. But for the most part, I was just obsessed with trying to get something special on film. Yeah, and shooting film is, is, is I guess, adds a whole other element to the, to the process. I actually called Creed McTaggart this morning and... I was like, hey, I'm going to interview Joe G. What, what, should, what should we talk about? And he described you with more virtues than I've ever heard anyone be described. He was, he was such a, a fan of, um, of yours. And, and he talked about how relaxed you are. And he was kind of talking about how you just sort of are able to uh, go through life uh, with this incredible like zen and just always be really, re really relaxed and composed and comfortable in your skin. And I was like, oh, does he, does he ever lose it? And then he told me this story of you, you guys on the way back from when you were um, on the way back from Mozambique and those incredible sessions there, which we were all shot on film and you had to take your film through the x-ray machine. And he said that was like the first <laughs> time he's ever seen you actually, I don't know, like not, not necessarily composed. Can you tell me that story? What happened there? I mean, I was completely rattled and shattered, but yeah, we, um, yeah, we went to Mozambique. Obviously it was a special trip and we were guided there by Alan Van Geisen, who everybody loves and respects as a surf photographer. Um, he actually had a, like an ex South African paramilitary guy who was guiding us as well. It was like, you know, just 
um, pretty hard to get those waves that we were trying to get. Yep. And sorry, just to, for anyone who um, isn't super across it, this is for strange rumblings in Shangri-La, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we for that movie, we tried to go to just you know places we had never been and challenge ourselves to get hopefully you know, some of the best waves that had ever been got in places that we had rarely seen. Um, but yeah, we um, <laughs> it was a mission. We got there. We were skunked. We had kind of missed an earlier swell. The sandbars were bad, and it was just kind of a shocker. Um, we we loved Mozambique. It was amazing. We found a bunch of little beaches that were really cool and a couple points that were fun, but not really what we came for. And then this crazy storm lined up and did what it has to do um, in order for that one wave, that big, long sandbar to do its thing. It's like a crazy right freight train barrel. And we shot, and it was just magic. It was just one of those days. It literally came and went within four hours. We came in the morning. The swell was getting tugged by the tide and uh, wasn't really doing it. And so we you know, it, it's, it kind of plays out how it did in the movie. Creed went out and just started messing around, and we literally left and then came back to that wave, and it was just firing. And every, we could not believe what we were seeing. And, um, you know, we shot it. Everything was great, and it just stopped. And uh, after about, I mean, maybe it wasn't even four hours. Maybe it was three hours, and the wave just turned off with the tide, and it was done. And we were like, wow, that was the craziest gift yeah. from the gods that we've ever seen. You know, I can't believe we got that. And uh, so we're, go- we're leaving and uh, we're in the airport. We were trans- transitioning our flights or whatever. And I have, you know, my burden in life is that I carry around all these crazy cylindrical cans of film, which, and a bunch of heavy gear and batteries that just look like weaponry and bombs. I'm trying to go through security and they just were like, no way, you're not going through, you know, and I always try to bring it through without getting x-rayed. And, uh, the security guy comes up to me and he spoke some English and, and, um, uh, yes, yeah, so it must've been in Mozambique cause they speak Portuguese, but he, he spoke a little English and he, I just told him, Hey, this is film. It's a, you know, a movie, you know, you can't x-ray it. And he's like, oh, okay, no problem. I gotcha. And he, he's like, give it to me, gave it to him. <laughs> he walks over and throws it in the x-ray machine and, <laughs> I just was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm like, you, you, can't, you can't throw it in there. He's like, it's okay, it'll go quick. And I'm like, oh, shit. So it's okay usually if you get your stuff x-rayed in the little machines. Like if it goes through real fast, there's no issue. But if it, if it goes through a bunch of times or if it sits there too long, it can get zapped. So it gets halfway through and the guy who's trying to help us starts yelling at the lady operating the machine to hurry it through. And then she stops it in the middle and starts yelling at him. (laughs) And my stuff's just in there cooking and the film's just sitting in there and they're arguing back and forth. And I'm like, oh my God. And I'm like, I am about to jump over the thing. And then he comes over and finally I went in and I yanked it out. And I was basically sure that it was gone. I was like, it's all gone. The film's gone. And, uh, we were just like on suicide watch sitting in the airport after that. And, uh, Waiting, and I was basically in a state of depression and um, and panic until I got back and got the film transferred, and it literally came out perfectly. There was no issue. No yeah, that's some of the most beautiful footage I've ever seen. It must have been the most amazing moment <laughs> when you when you got the first vision of it. Yeah, I think somehow, yeah, the uh, X rays made it look better. I don't know. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> So you have this. I mean, sh- shooting film is part of it. 
Um, but your your sort of lineage of films you've done with Globe have just been these amazing artifacts of quality. And I, it's like it, what really stands out when I look at your films is just how that fu- that quality on all level, whether it's the incredible surfing, the way they're shot or put together, and then even the music choices. How hard do you have to fight to achieve that quality? Um, yeah, I mean, I get pretty particular with it, you know, I mean, it's, I just, I was talking to Sam McIntosh about it the other day about something, but I was just, you know, I'm, I'm just a geek. It's not like I'm, I don't have, I, I don't like fancy myself as a professional or anything. I think I'm, I'm an amateur every time I'm kind of, every time we start a project, I feel like I'm doing it for the first time. Um, but I just really, really geek out on doing something special. And I guess, but I think a lot of it comes from growing up in Florida and feeling like I looked at the surf industry from the outside and it was so special to me from there. You know, I think Mm. a lot of guys, if you speak to guys from Florida, I think a lot of them go really far in our industry because of that, because it just feels so special and you've never been a participant. You've just kind of heard about it. And, um, and so for me, I think on the road, my whole career, I always kind of thought of the audience and I would always just think, I want to go get something special and bring it back to the audience. And I just, you know, you always think of that. So then you end up holding yourself to a pretty high standard and shots have to be special and locations have to be special. And, I, you know, like I never, it was never business as usual for me to make a film. Like I literally put everything into it. And sometimes I look back and I'm like, wow, you put everything you had into that and it looks pretty silly, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes, you know, you look back and some of them and you're like, oh, that was rad, you know? Yeah. I I just think like the added element in surfing of of the variables, whether it's a surface performance, uh, the weather and and swell forecasting, things like that. It is so hard to to really pull off magic and you've been able to deliver that consistently every time and and those sort of things take resources and money. Yeah, well that, I mean, for me to sit here and act like I just aim the camera and everything's awesome is ridiculous because, you know, first of all, I've been lucky to work with such an amazing group of surfers with Globe. I mean, and then you add that to incredible photographers who we were lucky enough to work with that brought us to special places and guides. And, you know, Matt Payne's worked with me a long time editing and George Manzanilla, who is no one in our industry probably knows who he is, but he's been, he's been like an edit guru for us since Poor Specimen. I hired him at a college um, at Poor Specimen, um, but he's worked with me forever. And so there's, you know, I get to take a lot of credit, I think, because I'm the one who sees it through to the end. But really, it's I've been real lucky to have a pretty crazy group of people working with me for a long time. For sure. And to go all the way back to Poor Specimen, in your early 20s, you started working at some like extremely lucrative finance company where people were driving Ferraris to work. And then you, mm. you quit that. And started working for free for Taylor Steel, and you guys started, you know, started poor specimen. But you were essentially you quit that to start packing VHS cassettes into boxes. Um, yeah. Do you, do you ever do you ever reflect on that that just like heavily polarized fork in the road, like that uh, sliding doors moment in your life? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I regret it every day. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, and to set the record straight, I was um, like the coffee boy there. So it was very lucrative for the people driving the Ferraris, but not so much for me. So yeah, I, um, <laughs> I made it to lunchtime my first day on the job as a um, securities trader. And, um, and I still, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like going to learn the ropes and figure it out. But I just kind of, um, I freaked out. Uh, I quit my job the first day and then I called Taylor and, and he was, I'd, I'd been literally, I'd actually been playing basketball with Taylor because I, I was, um, I was, I don't think I was living with the Weatherleys yet, but I was buddies with Jason and Benji Weatherly. We would play a bunch of basketball and go surf, uh, Pacific beach here and there. And uh, I met Taylor through them. And I literally just went for this desperation move of I've met Taylor a few times. I'm going to call him. And I'm just going to tell him, hey, good news. You know, your distribution troubles are over. You, you, you're, you should be doing way better. And I'm going to help you because I just graduated from a university or college over here. And, um, and <clears throat> we're going to start a distribution company. And he was like, oh, yeah, that sounds cool, man. I, I can't pay you. And I was like, no, it's okay. <laughs> I'll work for free. We're going to just, we're going to make this happen. And then later on, when you can pay me, you will. And he was like, I don't know if that's going to happen, man. I'm like, all right, I'll trust you. Let's go. And so we just did it. So it was easy to get a job because I didn't take any money. And did he take you on because he saw potential in you or did he just, he was just like, oh, free labor. Yes. I think he was like free labor. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't know. I, I Honestly, at that point, I don't think he probably saw much potential uh, in me. And I think he had good reason not to. We started a distribution company for Taylor, took over that side of the business. And, and as we got that up and running, I realized I was really bad at that. What I really loved was kind of peeking in the edit bay and Taylor was working on, I think he was working on loose change at that time. Classic. And, um, and it, yeah, it was a cool time because that was when um, like Jack Johnson was kicking around and um, Rob came back from a boat trip that they did for September sessions because they, they filmed September sessions while they were filming Loose Change and they were kind of, Jack was shooting Super 16 and, and uh, one of the guys for Poor Specimen was shooting video and mm -hmm. Rob came back with a mini disc player full of Jack Johnson songs. It was like, this guy's so good. And you know, it was like, it was a crazy time, the stuff that was going on in there. Um, but I just was so fascinated by it and I was like literally the runt uh, in the office. I had had no... Um, pedigree at that time. But um, I just was taking it all in and was so blown away by it um, and wanted to be involved in it. So I, I ended up begging Taylor to let me start producing or just, you know, be an associate producer on the films. And and um, he kind of let me in. And, and through him and through Poor Specimen, I kind of made connections and relationships with all the surfers and, and you know, kind of got to you know, learn about pretty much every facet of being an independent surf filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, your your approach to filmmaking, or your aesthetic at least, is so wildly different to Taylor's. And I'd love to know what you did learn from Taylor. I learned everything probably from Taylor. And then what I, what I did was, you know, I, I kind of took the things that he did so well and I, I thought he was so good at um, and again, maybe it was just the timing, but that was the time, you know, Chris Malloy was in there working on 
uh, maybe thicker than water was a little before that, but no, they were doing shelter. And I actually got to be like an associate producer on shelter. And, and that was such a big deal. And I don't know that I did very much, but I got a little credit for it. Um, but I got to watch Chris's sensibilities of filmmaking and, and his love of film and the, the artistry and the story. Um, but then I got to, you know, I was also working on, like, I, I, the first thing I ever kind of produced and ran myself was Momentum Under the Influence, um, which was like a traditional Taylor movie. I kind of always looked at that mix between the artistry and the beauty of film and the just raw performance of what Taylor's film stood for. And that was my goal. I literally would look at him and go, I want to make a movie that looks like what Chris or Jack is doing, but that has the level of what Taylor does. And that was kind of what I got inspired to go out and try to do. That actually does describe your films. That's a pretty apt description. Yeah, I mean, I think it was, you know, because Taylor was funny. His mark on our industry and our culture is just like so beyond, you know, even description. It's ridiculous. But he was funny with the films back then. I mean, it's changed a lot now, but, you know, quality was not something that he was really thinking about you know he was like you know video quality or how it was filmed or you know where the tapes were stored or whatever it was just eh, you know it's fine it's it's kelly's best session he's ever had doesn't matter what it looks like yeah it was a pretty punk aesthetic then wasn't it? it yeah and i you know he drew a lot from skateboarding and you know he didn't he didn't care at that point about how things were shot or how they looked or the quality. We used to like beg him to do like back when you had to do like an online conform to get the footage actually in high res, we'd have to beg him to rent the machine to do it because <laughs> he, was, he didn't care. <laughs> wow. But, but, um, and that was, you know, it was rad. His, his emphasis was on, I'm going to get the best part ever from Rob or whatever. And it, and it worked. You know, my whole thing was I wanted things to be elevated in quality. And so I would try to bring a little more of a traditional production mentality to it and have a couple pieces where it's like, hey, I'd rather work with kind of the best guy at each function of the job so that we can make a project that kind of stands out. What's your involvement with the team at Globe? Because Globe's got such an amazing team. Are you there, uh, like, in the decision-making around which surfers join the team? Yeah. Maybe at some of the other brands, there's a more balanced approach to how they select, you know, who's on their surf team. But for us, it's like, if you can get in a van with us and go travel around and find stuff, then you're probably a good fit. We we actually, um, when we were doing Secret Machine, no, not Secret Machine, we were doing Strange Rumblings, um, Brendan Gibbons... We, we invited him on a trip basically to vet him. It was like joining the mafia. We were like, okay, we'll invite him on a trip and <laughs> we'll see how does he fit in and you know, how, how does he you know, perform in front of the camera and everything. And we, we went to Iceland for that, for that trip. And uh, by the end of the trip, we basically like, you know, we jumped him in, but not with violence. We just drank a lot of tequila. <laughs> That's the initiation. And what, yeah. about, what about Sean Manners? How did he join the team? What was the, what was the process there? <laughs> You know, I mean, Creed's been talking about Sean forever, and I've been a fan of his surfing as it's evolved through his parts. And so, yeah, the opportunity came up to work with him more closely, and we're literally just getting started. But I'm so excited because I think he's, you know, one of the best free surfers in the world, and I can't wait to uh, aim the camera at him. Yeah, and I, and it gets exciting when there hasn't been any Globe films out for a while because it means that there might be something on the radar. Is there anything on the cook at the moment that you can talk about? 
Yeah, and along the lines of the low velocity stuff, one thing that's coming pretty soon that I'm excited about is um, Dark Hollow, which is um, a project that Dion Aegis and I and Globe have been working on for a long time. He's been working uh, filming and kind of we've been talking conceptually for a while. And the devastating thing for me is I was supposed to be down in Tasmania with him last few months finishing all the conceptual shoots for it. There's kind of an environmental narrative that dovetails with the the Globe's low-velocity message um, and also ties in with a collection that he's dropping with Globe called Dark Hollow. But um, that's coming really soon. Um, depending on the way the world is over the next few months, we're going to be dropping that, so it's super exciting too. Yeah, for sure. And is there any, uh, any ideas you've got boiling away or uh, concepts or is that something you always try and keep under wraps yeah those i definitely keep under wraps but um yeah nothing other than you know just try to make the best surf movie ever what are your goals with surf films beyond that though in terms of audience reaction or any of the external measures or do you just have your own standards internally that you're trying to meet there'll be usually something that just i start thinking about you know just something that i want to achieve but if you can imagine you know 500 people in a room you know raising a glass and celebrating it loud and yelling and cheering then that's pretty much what I'm what I'm going for you know it's that, like that's when you know that's your moment of like creative conceit oh that's like what we're thinking about everywhere we go in the world I'm literally thinking about that premiere and what that crowd's going to be doing and how we're going to get them excited cuz I you know that's to me, again, going back, growing up, you know, a surf film premiere. As you're, when you're a kid, it's like the most exciting thing. It's where everybody went on a Friday night. It's where everybody got their first beer or whatever. You know, it's just a special thing. And if we can kind of provide the backdrop or the motivation for everybody to get together and have a hell of a time, then it's worth it. Yeah, for sure. And then what about when it's a shorter online edit? Like, I mean, one of the reasons we wanted to get in contact with you because uh, something that you're involved with in a side project, Octopus, the hardware company just released a fleek with Harry Bryant and it's only six minutes, but it's six minutes of just... Yeah, hopefully six minutes that blows your head off. What's, what's it like getting a, a hard drive full of footage from Harry Bryant? Yeah, it's insane. I mean, he works with... Um with uh, Dave Fox a bunch. Um, They live right around the corner from each other. And Dave's like a, I think he's kind of asserting himself as one of the best surf cinematographers in the world. He's so special. We work with him a bunch with Globe. And um, yeah, they basically dropped that thing on on Octopus. And um, I couldn't believe it when I saw this. I just saw the selects Dav had assembled. And I was like, pfft throw a song on the thing's done it's <laughs> amazing i mean he's harry is you know as everybody if they didn't know already you know has probably found out he's just one of the most exciting surfers in the world and he kind of just represents for me um yeah what if i was surfing at that level that's how i'd want to surf it looks super super fun but it's super gnarly and then every once in a while he just reminds you he can do things that almost no one else in the world can do yeah and can you try and describe his appeal for me because I I just feel like his mix of just abs- sort of absurd and and playful approaches to his drop knee barrels and his um, <laughs> his double knee barrels and, th- and then that combined with his hyper explosive just 
like really boned out and committed airs is just it's such a like crazy and entertaining mix yeah it's insane i mean you you just said it it's it's that it's kind of that i mean it reminds me of like a i don't I don't know what to compare it to, but it's like a it, it kind of in skating when you see someone really gnarly in a skate park and they're just like throwing themselves down, you know, like a double stair set or, you know, just hitting things that other people would be scared and just blowing themselves up and kind of get up and keep going. It's like a train wreck that just keeps happening, but it's really fun to watch. And yeah, I don't know. I, it, it's, a, it's a mix that he has that I don't think very many people have. Like he's got incredible world-class ability, but he makes it look really fun and almost kind of, you know, like silly at times too. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's fun, it's fun to watch. And, and speaking about skate culture, they they really embrace rough cuts and 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 showcasing all the non-makes. And one of the things I loved about the Harry film was that there were a lot of airs he didn't make and they were super entertaining even though he didn't ride out. But then they, I felt like they just built this anticipation because when he would want make one, it was, you know, you'd already had all this um, tension built from the fails. Like... Do you think we should have include more more of that in, in surfing? I feel oh, like that's f- for me a hundred percent. I think like we've we've always done that with the globe films too. Like I mean, it's it was harder because you know in a longer film, it's like there's so much stuff we've filmed for so long. There's so much you have to fit in, and it usually ends up being like you know you're, you're already heartbroken because there's really really good makes that don't make the cut. Um, but like I've for me a good slam or a bail or whatever is you know is just as meaningful of a clip and it's funny in skate which like with through globe i get to dabble in that world a bit i'm more of a helper in that world than i am leading anything but i i love that rough cut sensibility where you where you've gotten to see that but that's pretty recent you know traditionally in skate it's like you only see the perfection yeah and honestly, when that was kind of the status quo in skate videos, I couldn't really watch them. I was pretty bored. Yeah. And because for me, perfection is boring. Like that's, that's great. It looks like everything else. But when you really start to see someone's style or you really start to see someone's personality is kind of in the imperfect parts, you know, and um, in the parts where everything didn't go as planned and they just had to react. And that's what I love to see in surfing too. I mean, I, I love even before we'll go on a, when we're going on a trip or if we're working on a surf part, like I've said to the guys before, like put yourself in a position that you're not used to being in and, and put in and I love seeing the guys surfing waves that they're not used to. And they'll be so rattled that like they don't have a hold on it, but when they're really talented, which, you know, all these guys that we work with are, their reactions are where the special stuff is, you know, when they, when they react to something and it, and, then little genius happens. It's pretty cool. And, and talking about just the craft of filmmaking, uh, what are the three biggest things that young filmmakers overlook or underestimate in your eyes? I guess I, could, I was going to say to a young filmmaker, I don't know, it's just um, you, everybody should be pushed out of their comfort zone, the, the surfers and yourself. You should be trying to learn uh, something on every trip or every time you're shooting, you should never just kind of approach it as if you have it all figured out. I think that's one of the, one of the biggest things that, that I do. And I think it's just because I can't seem to learn, 
But um, I basically approach it as it's my first time every time I set out to do it. And when you put yourself in that mindset, you're open to like reacting and to, and to trying new things and to, and to grow. And, you know, everybody's seen guys who are the expert or the guy who, you know, thinks he has it all wired. And, you know, then if you're not open to new things, or you're not open to the world, you're going to miss stuff. So I, I would say, you know, those are some of the most important things. Uh, that's kind of all I got. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the one thing I'm excited about right now is actually something with Globe. Um, we've been talking about it through Stab a little bit, um, but we're about to launch the next season of the Low Velocity Collection, which is this total revamp of the apparel. That's why Sean came on. That's why Taj came on for yeah. apparel. Um, but yeah, just... I don't know. It's just something really cool. It's something I'm excited about. They've kind of totally revamped everything they're doing from an apparel production standpoint and trying to be more sustainable and responsible with what they're doing. And I don't know. I just, it's something that we've talked about for a long time there. And to see that change and to see it all come to fruition and then the boys joining up, like, you know, Taj signing on to be an apparel writer, Sean signing on to be an apparel writer, joining Dion and, and, uh, us being able to go down this new road is pretty exciting. Yeah, thanks so much for the time. It was um, that was great. I don't know. Yeah, was it? Did we do anything? Did we did we make any ground? Did we save the world? Have we changed anything? We have not done anything important, but I all think right. I think you've said a lot of entertaining stuff. So that's all that really matters. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I appreciate it. Oh no worries. Uh, I've been a huge fan for a long time, so I was actually. Really looking forward to it, and hopefully meet you in the flesh one of these one of these days. Please, please let me back into Australia. Please let me back into please Australia. Let me back into please Australia. It's now time to chat to Ashton Goggins about Andy Irons and the Radicals. The title of this first episode is "The Making of a Hellraiser," and the description for the episode reads. Before the world titles, money and fame, Andy Irons was just a self-obsessed, toe-headed Hawaiian grom. For the first episode of Andy Irons and the Radicals, a look at Andy's childhood influences, Sonny Garcia, Derek and Michael Ho, Chris Ward, Corey and Shay Lopez, Matt Archibald and more. So let's hear from Ashton about what it was like to revisit the life of Andy Irons via his brother Bruce, some of his closest friends an enemy or two, and thousands of hours of analog tape. My brother was like that, unpredictable, raw, you didn't know what you are going to get. It's a fringe culture. It's like outside the, the realms of daily bullshit. Yeah, there's no chickens in the background. I, think, I keep forgetting you're in Hawaii, and then when we have a meeting, I just hear this. Oh, yeah. We have like a whole village of roosters that live in various different little corners of the four or five little houses that are part of our little like corner of the neighborhood. Oh my God, that would send me insane. Um, but yeah, anyhow, there shouldn't be any now. We're good. The sun's setting. Um, so this is it. The, uh, first episode of Andy Irons and the Radicals. Chapter one of four is has come out. And um, so I guess let's take it from the, the, the top. How did the film come together? Well, as you know, Sam McIntosh is a big fan of paying attention to anniversaries and it was coming up on the 10 year anniversary of Andy's passing. And we sort of started talking about what type of a project we could work on to sort of celebrate that. And especially after Kiss by God came out, um, there was this sense that it was time to sort of 
look back at the different stages of Andy's career, specifically just through his surfing, and to really get a sense for where he came from, what made him, sort of what shaped him into the surfer that he was, and how his surfing has, to most people that you would, you know, we sort of did a quick poll when we were thinking about this project and asked people if you were to say who was the most influential surfer of the past 25 years, uh, almost to a person, everybody said Andy Irons. And so we sort of wanted to know like what that meant and look in, in and sort of really dive into it. And the whole thing started from a conversation, oddly enough, at Surf Expo in Florida with two Pat Eichstead, with Patrick Eichstead, who was one of the lost filmers from the early 90s. And I just sort of happened to ask him if he had, you know, any old tapes or unseen footage of Andy or, or of the lost years, because I knew he'd been with them forever. And he just happened to mention that him and his brother Hopper, who was another filmer um, for Lost, but who also lived with Andy and Bruce when they were like teenagers on Kauai, that he had this box of tapes that they had never had digitized. And so we sent Sam Moody immediately to Florida to go and interview two Pat and to grab those tapes. And that was like sort of the beginning of it all. We sort of diving into the tapes. Yeah, it's, it's incredible to me that all that footage hadn't been dis- digitized. Like these guys hadn't realized the value in it and how much people want to watch anything that exists of Andy Iron surfing. Yeah, that, you you know, back then, like you said, the, the, you know, a lot of these people were filming for surf films for, you know, years at a time for different parts. And a lot of stuff would just sort of end up on the cutting room floor. It was like three and a half minute video parts. So, that it, you know, there wasn't like all this sprawling digital documentation of people's lives. It was just VHS handicams that these kids have, you know, like half of the footage from episode two is, you know, Shay Lopez walking around with a, with a handicam, just like interviewing people and talking to his buddies. And for anyone that's confused about the idea of another Andy Irons documentary at this point, after Kiss by God came out, uh, I think roughly five or six years ago, was it now? What, what's different about this one or, or why should they watch this one? After Andy passed away, there was like a period of time where there was just so much sort of hearsay about p- different periods of his life and drug use and depression and, you know, his, his sort of issues with mental illness and bipolar disorder. And that was kissed by God. You know, it was this like story of like the other side of Andy that people never talked about while he was alive or that people were maybe afraid to or didn't know how to. Which was, I think, you know, crucial. And I think that that, like, really, it seemed like it sort of closed the end of that part of his story. But after that movie came out, you know, for a lot of people, that was, that movie was their introduction to Andy. It wasn't a new, it wasn't just a new story that they didn't know. It was the only thing that they knew. It would be like if, you know, a sports documentary came out and it was just about, you know, Michael Jordan's gambling habit, if that had been the thing that like ended his career or something. It, um, there was, there was a lot of space to really show what it was that made Andy so special as a surfer, uh, that hadn't been done in that movie that it really wasn't the movie's job to do. Um, and at this point, you know, it's been the, the nineties are just becoming sort of nostalgic, uh, from a real, sort of like core surf standpoint. And I feel like Andy was the sort of pinnacle of that period of time of the sort of con- like congruent movement from 80s and early 90s power surfing to air guy, sort of early 90s progression to, you know, all conditions, competitive surfing in the turn of the century. Um, 
that that period of time to me was like some of the most exciting time in the surf industry and for surf culture and for surf brands and surf movies. And that Andy was always sort of right at the center of a lot of those. Uh, and so being able to go through and sort of mine all of those periods of time for different narratives and to see where Andy fit into all of those places was really interesting. Yeah. And it is a four part series. So can you give us a quick rundown of of watching what's in each episode, like what we can expect to, um, to see as each episode comes out. Yeah. So it's going to be four, like 20 to 40 minute episodes. The first episode, which just came out today is the making of a Hellraiser. It's basically him up to about age 16, 17 years old. It sort of touches on like the early influences that he encountered through his time with Chris Ward and uh, Corey Lopez in California. Oh man, th- time this, with those stories that, sorry to interrupt, but those stories that came out of that that I'd, I'd never even heard. I mean, there's so much even in the first episode that has never been talked about. Um, and and those the stories in there with Andy, not to give too much away, but ends up in jail and the fights that they have and and... Yeah, I was I was blown away at just those those moments, even just in the first episode so far. Yeah, I just think that you know you think about these these kids from these little towns all sort of converging on San Clemente at fifteen, sixteen years old. Corey and Shay from the Gulf Coast of Florida, you know Bruce and Andy from Kauai. They meet in Hawaii at Alamoana Bowls, and then all come to California together, and they're like these little pack of lost children, just ripping and with you know at that time probably the most prolific filmers and shooters at the time you know pointing their cameras at him you had flame at salt creek and jason kenworthy and uh you know bill bryan and drew todd all these filmers that were around and they were like the next generation kids you know on gotcha and mcd and you know with lost being sort of the new big brand um it was for me those were like the formative kids that were that you know I looked that were just a few years older than me and who were like scary you know they were 15 16 year old kids traveling the world by themselves like drinking surfing waves that no one had ever surfed before and like doing whatever they wanted which I think was like a pretty I think they sort of pushed that uh style of professional surfing to its like logical extremes yeah oh but hey don't uh, I I uh, detracted you what's keep running through the episodes Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll, I should I just start that from the beginning? No. No, no, no. Just keep going. Whatever. I mean, you, yeah. Yeah. Just keep <laughs> going. I think like, uh, I don't know where you're up to. I mean, I guess you were just kind of halfway through the first I, episode, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so episode one gets you to basically his first real winters on the North Shore uh, which, which is where the film, where the, let me say that over. The first episode ends at him sort of getting on MCD and the, that team's influence on him as a teenager. And episode two starts with them renting the house at Log Cabins that sort of brought their whole crew together as friends. Um, you know, the, the Momentum Generation had that like Benji's house that was like the catalyst for their group and for. Andy, Corey, Nathan Fletcher, Chris Ward, Casey Collins, um, Chris Brown, like so many surfers, this little house that Shane Beshin found them at Log Cabins became sort of the catalyst to all of their friendships and the backdrop to most of their movies throughout the early 90s. Um, so that's the main chunk of episode two is the Log Cabins house and his, the, the influence that those movies had on surfboard design through 5519 and a quarter. And then Andy's influence on surfboard design through his relationships with Mayhem, Jason Stevens, Eric Arakawa, and James Chili. 
James Cheel. And episode three is his early sort of competitive rivalries and his relationship with Taj Burrow, which was one of the more interesting, like, yeah. unknown things from the movie is just how complex and difficult their relationship was. Um, and how vicious he was towards Taj. Oh, uh, isn't that incredible? He just would, <laughs> he was so brutal and, and fiercely competitive with Taj. It, it, uh, it was a real revelation. Yeah, doing that interview with Taj, because we shot that while we were doing Stab in the Dark, and it was like a real quick, like, you know, shift of gears for Taj to sort of revisit this, you know, this relationship that but really it was a hard part of his career, you know, of just having this, this, you know, imagine being the, the greatest surfer from Australia of that generation and you're constantly being beat up by Andy Irons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But hey, I detracted you again. Are we still running through the episodes? What are we up to, four? <laughs> That's episode four. So episode four starts with Taj and it ends with his sort of competitive like dominance and what made that competitive dominance so impactful as far as like that period of time being when Chopu got added on tour and him winning that first event, that first Gotcha Pro and I think it was 99 or 2000. But it, it's, um, also got, it's also got all that footage from his last year on tour, right? That's, that's never been seen. So, and so I'm sorry. So that, yeah, we're on episode three. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is all episode, yeah, this is all episode three. It's, it starts with Taj, goes through his competitive dominance in the early 2000s and sort of his influence through that sort of famous Andy turn and his and Bruce and Chris Ward and all those guys sort of pushing the boundaries of backside tube riding um, with that sort of like lazy ass drag, arm in the face, elbow in the face, pig dog that those guys all do. Um, and how those sort of those guys sort of put together a, a, a sort of new type of surfing that mixed like real progressive new school surfing with power surfing and like sort of positioning in waves of consequence that had never really been put together into one sort of deadly surfer. And that was Andy. All right. And then episode four, like you said, is pretty much all taken from his last year on tour as he came back after like a two year hiatus. And that all came about, that was another one of those sort of like, we have to make a movie moments was Jason Hatch, um, a surfer and filmer from the Gulf coast. Who's one of Corey Lopez and those guys, childhood friends was one of Andy's filmers for years on tour and was with him uh, in 2010 as he did his last year and had not really opened up his hard drives. And so he sent over pretty much everything he had from that last year on tour with Andy, which no one had ever seen. And I think what was really surprising was, you know, even talking to people like Sam and, uh, you know, Sam McIntosh and other guys who were like big Andy fans, they don't really remember that much of his surfing from the last year of his life being that impressive. And that hard drive has such incredible footage that no one's ever seen from 2010 from Australia, from a trip that he did to cloud break, getting ready for Tahiti before he won that last event. Um, and from a last trip to California and some sessions with Corey Lopez at lowers and then Portugal and, uh, France as well before he went to Puerto Rico. So being able to like sort of build a, a an episode around those last, uh, stops on tour and those last free surfs with friends was um, a pretty special experience, like going through and making one last Sandy Irons edit. Yeah. And, and one of the things you touched on it slightly, but is just the way Andy's surfing hasn't aged. When you look back at all this footage, it, the, the, there's something about his approach to a wave and how raw and uh, how much power he, 
he sort of attacks a wave with it. It just is so ageless. So it's incredible to watch back and and just think like, man, this could happen today and it would be just as impressive. And 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 then I think on top of that, one of the things I just loved about watching, especially this first episode is is the footage of him uh, when he's so young, you know, and Bruce there as well, the pine trees. And he's he clearly... He uh, develops as a surfer and and gets and gets better, but just that footage of him really young and kind of like, you know, like skinny, loose limb doesn't quite have the power, but just like he still has that rawness and he's figuring it out is is just oh, I could watch that I could watch that shit forever. Yeah, we were you know one of the things that's been cool about making this movie is that I do feel like I've suddenly like reinvigorated the like 15 year old Grom in me that used to watch raw irons and lost across America, like every morning with a bowl of cereal, like watching that, those nineties clips, like in good quality versions, uh, has gotten me so excited to go out and like try and rip the bag out of a wave, even though it doesn't look like Andy irons. Sometimes it feels a little bit like what you hope Andy felt when he was doing some of those turns. (laughs) Yeah. And and what was Coco Ho's response when you asked her to do the voiceover for the film? Coco was uh, a gracious and very, very kind acceptor of the, uh, the offer. That didn't make any sense at all. I don't even know how to say this. Coco was rad. She was psyched to do the project. The second that we talked to her about it, she was like completely on board. She's a huge Andy fan when she was a kid. And I think it was a really fun sort of process for her. Here's the other one. What are you doing? Raw irons, the new guy. This is the early 90s. This is ripping. This is the new school. These are wetsuits and board shorts. These are the world champions. And this is a teenage Andy Irons enjoying his first taste of glory. The blonde country kid from Kauai, the 1996 NSSA national champion. But she's used to spelling like really complicated long Hawaiian words and stuff. Like if there's people that can, if there's anyone that can pronounce like complicated words, it's Hawaiians. Well, yeah, that's true. They do have some, um, some tricky combinations of syllables, but uh, she's very good at it. And I mean, I guess she's coming for, for your job, Ashton. Oh, she can have it. I don't think anybody would complain if they never heard my voice again. <laughs> she's like, she's like, uh, if Scarlett Johansson was Hawaiian, that would be Coco Ho's voice. That's, it's, it's that's, like, that's a beautiful description. Well, it's a, a royal Hawaiian smoky uh, female voice. What could be, what could be better for a surf movie than that? That's that's true, and and I guess that's a good point to end on. That we've said enough, and and everyone's probably getting sick of our voices right now. So. <laughs> Yeah, I hope I hope everyone goes and watches the movie, and uh, I hope that everyone is sort of stoked on what we're trying to do with Stab Premium with projects like this because there's a lot of stories like this that deserve the time and attention and the effort to go through and find these this unseen footage and and sort of tell these stories. So thank you to all the Stab Premium subscribers. It means the world to us that you guys are back in these things. Back in these things. Back in, back in these things. Back in these things. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Drop. If you're not already and you're interested in becoming a member of Stab Premium for premium editorial, deep dive journalism, objective product reviews, how-tos, and then, of course, Stab's original films, including what we've just been talking about, the Stab's latest, Andy Irons and The Radicals. There is a link in the episode description. So click on through to the site and you can sign up there for either monthly or yearly memberships cancel any time 
I'm out next week, but Mikey Charamella will be here to make sure the drop still drops. And thank you for listening. Yeah, with with technology. Actually, you should call my uh, you should call this phone number right now. I have a pretty funny one. What do you mean you have a funny one? My voice, my voice now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'll uh, I'll I'll give that a, I'll give that a try. Yeah, give it a buzz. It's pretty. I I didn't even remember doing it. I had a couple um, tequilas the other night. Do a new outgoing voicemail message because I've been doing so many Zoom calls. Yeah. And I and I just came up with this idea and then I forgot that I did it. <laughs> Uh, and my buddies were texting me the next day like, oh my God, your message is insane. That's so funny. And I was like, I have no idea what I put on there. I better go check it out. No way. All right. I'm definitely going to do that. Hi, I'm in a Zoom meeting. Hang up now and you'll be auto-directed to join the meeting. Once inside, keep your mute button pressed until it's your time to present. Can't wait to see you on Zoom.